Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith, and today we are learning about audiation, which literally means to think music. For teachers who incorporate audiation and its accompanied music learning theory in their teaching, it is a way to help students deepen their musical understanding from the very beginning of training. Here to talk with me about this is my guest, Siliana Shiliashka, who uses music learning theory and audiation in her teaching in her own private piano studio. Siliana is a dedicated music educator who has performed and taught piano throughout North America, Canada, and Europe. She debuted as a soloist with the Vratza Philharmonic Orchestra in Bulgaria when she was 10 years old. A graduate of the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto, Canada, Siliana holds a bachelor and a master's degree in piano performance. She is a recipient of numerous scholarships, including the UCSB Music Affiliates Quarterly Performance Award, the SB Music Club, and she's an awardee of several competitions and festivals in Bulgaria, Canada, and the U.S. So, Siliana, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, I'm very happy to see you and to chat with you. I've been wanting to talk with you ever since I saw some videos of your piano teaching on social media. And I just loved the way your students were internalizing their music and the way that you were interacting with your students. And I did a little research into it and your teaching method uses audiation, which I know nothing about. So can you explain what audiation is? Yeah, so audiation is a term uh, that wasn't always in the dictionary. <laughs> It was coined by the researcher Edwin Gordon, and uh, it basically means to comprehend, to hear and comprehend music for which the sound is not present or may have never been present. So it's very different than I think sometimes people compare it to inner hearing or imitation, but it's um, the difference is that with audiation, you actually understand what you're hearing. And you can understand it on many different levels uh, from very uh, many different aspects. So there are many things we can audiate in music. We can audiate uh, tonal patterns, rhythm patterns, but also we can audiate style, timbre, phrasing, um, all kinds of things. <laughs> so many, many things, elements of, of music that we can audiate. Uh, but the ones that we focus on mostly is uh, uh, rhythm and, and tonal. Okay. And so this is, that's something that we as musicians and as just as normal people, this is something that we do all the time, right? Yes, absolutely. Good. So how are, how do you incorporate that into your teaching? So is that, is, is that something that you're training into your students, just like being more cognizant of it? What's the difference? Yeah. Well, it, I think it's, it's, um, I think as musicians, we do audiate on certain levels for sure. And eventually we figure it out. Uh, but I think what we've missed, a lot of us have missed in our earlier training is, you know, beginning with audiation, beginning with training our ear in a way that will make us better musicians and lifetime musicians and independent musicians. And really in a way that we can find a lot more joy and meaning in our music making. So is that how you learned piano as well? No. <laughs> no? Oh. <laughs> not at all. 
So um, it's not that I didn't experience joy when I was a student. I went to a, a specialty music school, which for which you audition when you're five or six years old. I did when I was six, just turned six. And ironically, my first teacher was a composer and he was an arranger. He was quite amazing. I know he was commissioned to do many works uh, across the country. And he did many arrangements for me to to play with the or local orchestra. But he never taught me how to do any of that. He never taught me improvisation or, uh, you know, ar arranging or composing skills. Um, and because it was a specialty school, we went to piano lessons. I think it was twice a week that we did piano lessons. And once or twice a week, we did solfege, which was in, in that particular school was about uh, developing our ear, but it was more of a theoretical thing. So we would, I feel like it was almost aimed at developing perfect pitch because all of us had perfect pitch. And I, to this day, I can't figure out if it was something that happened as a result of the training system or maybe oh. it was something that we had um, maybe a potential for. But I know I didn't have perfect pitch before I started you know, my musical classes there. So um, anyway, <laughs> uh, I learned, we learned very complex things, uh, such as taking four-part dictation, um, you know, writing dictation from listening and singing four-part style and labeling chords, like with no Roman numerals, uh, when we were eight, nine, ten years old. I didn't think that that served me at all because in my music making otherwise, you know, with my piano teacher, we didn't really ever discuss the things, the elements that we were learning in my solfege class, classes. And it's like I never made the connection. And that makes me very sad because if I had made the connection, then I would have had a much more solid memory, probably would have been much more comfortable performing from memory and just performing in general. I think the more we understand about what we're doing, the more confidence and joy we experience in performing. And I think that's the base issue that I see with students is that, you know, they're very nervous because a lot of their learning process is centered around what their teacher tells them to do. And some of them are exceptionally good at imitation, at imitating and they get far that way. But, you know, the emphasis is not on audiation. The emphasis is not on creativity and understanding, applying audiation to music making. Okay. So now when you're teaching now, you're making a much more conscious effort to bring in that audiation. So how does that look different? Are you still teaching solfege to your students just in a different way? Or is it completely different? It is in a different way partly because my studio hasn't switched completely to the, you know, 100% audiation-based studio. I'm not a studio like that just yet. It is mm -hmm. my dream to be because, um, but I think sometimes we have to meet students halfway uh, and sometimes mm -hmm. we have to meet parents' expectations halfway. Sometimes parents want their kids to be able to do exams early on, which is an issue because we don't start music reading from day one and it's sound before sight and I know I had a lot of misconceptions about this before I knew about it before I knew the reasons why it was such a great thing 
And I myself had reservations to teaching in this way because I wasn't sure what the long-term implications were. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have a question about that. Yes, I actually have a question about that too. I wonder if it's, you know, sound before sight. I, I just think about my own training and how I was taught the musical symbols like rhythm, how to read from day one. That was, you know, very ground into me. So I'm a very good sight reader now. And I wonder if concentrating on sound before sight makes gives those students a little bit of a disadvantage. But have you seen that at all or no? I don't think so, because we don't actually hide notation from them. We show notation from the very first lesson. We just don't present notation in such a decoding kind of way. So we, you know, we show the notation to the student. We um, expose them to a lot of informal guidance with notation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't read symbol by symbol, which to me is a, is a big problem because that's that's where you get a lot of robotic playing from early beginners. And sometimes that can translate to a very long time of playing that way. Um, and also yeah. just perceiving music on a level of note, note to note basis or more vertical. Even when you start learning, learning more notes like chords, it's a lot of it is too vertical sometimes. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's a problem with starting to label chords too early or starting or just thinking about music theory and, and analysis from the standpoint of Roman numeral analysis and, and not so much, you know, uh, the interweaving voices and, and more of a linear analysis as well that goes together with the more vertical approach that we're used to on our theory exams. According to the Gordon Institute for Music Learning website, music learning theory is a comprehensive approach for musical learning based on an extensive body of research and practical field testing by Edwin E. Gordon and others. It focuses on the teaching of audiation, Gordon's term for the ability to think music in the mind with understanding through establishing sequential curricular goals in accord with the teacher's own teaching styles and beliefs. Learning sequence activities include singing, rhythmic movement, and tonal and rhythm pattern instruction, and they're all introduced to the student before notation and music theory is. Complete information about this theory can be found in Edwin E. Gordon's book, Learning Sequences in Music, Skill, Content, and Patterns. So, so walk me through this then. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this because you're introducing the you're introducing the notation in an informal way, yes. and then you are promoting listening and singing and improvisation and getting the kids to really internalize. Can you walk me through what a lesson looks like? Yes, we always start with um, movement, some some kind of a movement activity that goes together with um, singing and. Uh, that's kind of warms up our mind and body to music, to rhythm and to tone. And the those activities are infinite <laughs> in number. And there are many, many resources that I, I use. And so we can also, of course, create our own once we understand uh, how to apply music learning theory and the tenets of music learning theory. We can certainly begin to create our own resources for for this 
Uh, but this is how we start. We always start away from the instrument. Um, and then after we've done some of that, we, depending on where we are in the learning process, um, I also throw in some rhythm patterns and some tonal patterns to the student in which you've probably seen some of my videos uh, that demonstrate this. The student would chant back or sing back the rhythm or tonal pattern. They may, I may ask them to do it exactly the same. So, um, you know, repeat the same pattern or I may want to work on them um, singing back the resting tone or keeping the resting tone, which is another way to call the tonic of the you know of the pattern uh and or i may ask them to sing just the first pitch so basically to for them to audiate the first pitch of the whole pattern which is usually made up of three uh, two to four notes um and then or i may ask them to improvise back to me so if i say ba 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 and they all say something like ba 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 they may say something like that because I asked them to play something or to chant something different. Um, then we would move on to the piano and uh, we would either have more movement activities, uh, but now that are in the context of the piece or pieces that we're about to learn. Sometimes we start the piano portion with a review. Review is really important. So reviewing old pieces and finding as many ways to use them with in creative ways such as mashing them up uh creating uh you know bridging them together thinking about all the pieces that we've done and maybe there's something similar between two or three of the pieces that we've done so far and connecting them together composing introductions or uh, endings to them composing uh bridges between the different pieces so again, the possibilities there are endless and I like to spend as much time on this as, as possible because this is kind of for, you know, it shows the student that there's so much more they can do with a piece of music that right. at first sight is very simple and they can be probably be learned very quickly, but that you can go so much deeper and you can learn so many skills by toying around with something so simple. Mm -hmm. And then we may go back to the floor. So it, that's called activity time too. <laughs> and we may do some more uh, experiences with different tonalities. So that's a very important aspect of music learning theory that um, we expose children to or any age learner to different tonalities, not just major and minor, but all the modes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we may do some some more of that, but that's usually a brief period of time. And then we go back to the piano and it's, you know, the time when we learn something new. Uh, and that can stretch for a while, <laughs> but it can stretch over more than one class. Uh, it can be just the beginning of exposing the student to listening to the piece, uh, maybe keeping a single uh, beat on a single set like a resting tone while they listen uh, again the activities there are endless if they understand you know we we always employ the whole part whole learning process so we listen to the whole we experience the whole in as many ways as we have time for then we look at the parts so what are the rhythm patterns what are the tonal patterns we may improvise with some of the rhythm patterns um, and then we 
go back to the whole, but now with more understanding because we've seen the parts. And that's it. And then we send the student away. We usually send the student away with some listening assignments because listening is, is a big part of developing our ear. And then they come back the next time and it's all over the same process all over again. And kids are loving it. It's, that's a huge part of why I want to do this because I see a lot of uh, acceptance and it's just a, the most natural way for a child to learn. Mm -hmm. So now when you send them home, in traditional lessons, they have a, an assignment that they're supposed to practice at home. Yeah. And you give them listening assignments, but is there, do they have specific things? Like, do they need to learn the notes that they've learned that day? Or do they need to practice their piece? What does their practicing look like at home? That's an excellent question. And it can look many different ways and while they are in informal guidance so we this you know we make a distinction between informal guidance and formal instruction so informal guidance is when the student is still experiencing the instrument ex you know learning certain skills and when they've learned those skills and they're ready for formal instructions then they are expected to practice and they have specific uh, assignments, not necessarily that have anything to do with reading notes or learning notes, but everything to do with functional skills. Uh, le the learning of notes comes a little bit later, maybe in the second year, depending oh, okay. on the if the student is in informal guidance when they're three or four years old, by the time they're six, they can start formal guidance. And by the time they're seven, they can be ready to read notes. And that makes sense. That's kind of developmentally when they're starting to read words. And so right. that really does make sense for that to happen. So this instruction starts when they're very young. It starts when they're about three or four. That's ideal. I know it doesn't yeah. always go that way. And when someone is just walking into my studio and they're six years old and they've never had any, you know, they, they haven't had much experience with, with music around them. It's hard for me to explain to the parents where they need to start from. It's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I would think especially with this informal sort of structure when they're a little bit older, I can see the parents are wanting to have some sort of validation for the investment that they're putting into lessons and, you know, all of those competitions and auditions like you were talking about, give them that external validation. How do you, I guess quote-unquote, sell this to them? Uh, I can give them a lot of things to read. Um, <laughs> that is the reason why I want to start a podcast myself, because this information isn't isn't out there enough. I mean, there are a couple of wonderful, wonderful podcasts that are very MLT-based or around MLT or are all about MLT. But there needs to be more that directly speaks to the parents, um, that oh, you know, directly see. answers their questions question that they're asking or potentially asking, um, you know, questions that I've had myself as, as a teacher, as a parent, um, and that have been answered. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's the answers are out there. They're, a lot of them are in the research that's been published, but uh, who reads research? You know, the parents probably won't reading music learning research. No. no, um, no, no. So it, it's a challenge to bring them into this world. It's a challenge to... Um, ask them to be patient and to give something like this a chance 
And I think it's only because everything else is done so differently and they are, they, they're just brought up to have certain expectations and it, it's very difficult to change someone's mind or maybe impossible. Mm -hmm. So to do it very slowly yeah. and sometimes meet them halfway, you know, yes. give them the, what they need, but also sprinkle some good stuff <laughs> along the line. <laughs> so they don't know that they're having it. It's like, yeah, it's like when it's like when you hide something healthy in a brownie or something. Absolutely. Zucchini, zucchini and cookies. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so just in case uh, any listeners are wondering, MLT stands for the music learning theory. And as you were talking, I was wondering um, when your kids are in this informal learning, I, you were talking about the improvisation with the with the rhythms. So if you were to go ba, 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 and they were to answer back, ba, 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 something completely different. Is that something that you encourage with them or are you like, no, listen and try to match? It's just whatever they want. Uh, sometimes we ask them to do whatever they want and uh -huh. uh, if they do something that's completely um out of context of what right. you want them then we just know that they're in music babble and this oh. is the very beginning and uh, we call it music or music learning theory calls it music babble it's like the first stage of, of everything and it's uh, the same as language model you know after the baby has been listening to lots of adults around them speak the native language they begin to uh, try to make some sounds themselves and they're babbling and so this is the same thing with me they're not yet realizing that they're not matching you exactly uh, they don't have that realization yet so once they do have that realization, both in language and music, then they go to another stage. <laughs> and we know that they're in that other stage, but that's still informal. So there's, I think there's five stages to informal guidance um, that they have to go through. And imitation is one, and it has to be correct imitation, exact imitation. And, you know, the ability to imitate is definitely uh, a requirement in order to begin to learn to audience. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing with like you gave the comparison to speech. They babble and then they imitate and they just copy whatever their parents say. And so you have to be really careful as a parent what you say around oh, your yeah. kids because they're imitating <laughs> because they're going to imitate you. So I love how this is so parallel to language development. Is mm -hmm. I just think that's that's fascinating. And another thing that I love the way that you have structured your lessons each activity seems to kind of scaffold on the le the activity before. Yes. And I think that is so, so smart. Like, I just well, love I that. Well, I didn't make it out. <laughs> there's there's a book <laughs> in It's called Music Moves for Piano. And it's by Marilyn Lowe. And <laughs> she, she worked with Gordon for many, many years. And she came up with, you know, everything she came up with, I think she ran it through him. And... Mm -hmm. You know, it was basically her uh, life's work. Uh, just this method was uh, decades of work. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, I know that you are meeting some students halfway. I'm just thinking about just this last week. I have a couple of students and I introduced them to the Dorian mode just for fun. And I said, look how easy and fun it is to improvise in this mode. 
this will be great. Some of my younger students were like, woo, and they, they were all in it. And then some of my older students were so afraid to play a wrong note, it almost froze them. And I know improvisation is a huge part of, of music learning theory. How do you get your students out of their shell if maybe they're a transfer student to you? Yeah, transfer students are so, so difficult. I've always thought that even before I was an NLT teacher, just transfer students come with whatever they're used to, whatever they've learned. You don't know the environment in which they've been all these years. And they come with certain expectations and uh, certain things that they're willing to do or not willing to do. And for them, there are some wonderful books, you know, that have simple enough rote pieces or pattern-based pieces that I use to kind of tickle (laughs) that ability in them. Uh, Sometimes I don't use these books, I just use their pieces and I show them how something can be changed. And I show them how cool it is. Hopefully they think it's cool. They usually do. Sometimes, um, Sometimes they freeze and that's a normal, I think, normal reaction when someone is out of their comfort zone and especially a teenager in those years it's um it's just a normal reaction and we have to not push it so hard on them but we have to keep showing it to them and introducing reintroducing and i think the joy that i experience from doing this myself and teaching this is infectious and it it goes (laughs) even across the screen. So (laughs) that's what I can say about it. But it's definitely a challenge. Chancellor students are challenging for many reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you say that there's these phases, there's phases in the informal structure. And then are there phases in the formal structure as well? Once they get a little older and they start? Yeah. So, you know, once we start formal guidance, we expect them to actually start building up rhythm and tonal vocabulary. And we start mm-hmm. with tonic and dominant for tonal, and then we add subdominant, and then we go to different modes after that. And they learn to improvise and, and compose in all these different scenarios. Um, and But again, it's cyclical in the way that, uh, that the method itself keeps bringing back all pieces, all, you know, a lot of them are familiar folk twos that uh, kids grew up with or are growing up with. Um, and that's that's a great thing because they have these twos uh, as sort of their native vocabulary. And then they learn to to change them in so many ways. So it progresses very, um, very logically. And when you get to, I think, year two or year three of formal instruction, it's when you're supposed to introduce formal reading. But again, as I said, you can do this as you like, really. I mean, Gordon found that uh, decoding notation, learning to read notation is in the way of developing audiation. I mean, I've seen this in my students over the years, that as soon as you put something up there and it's a symbol that they have to decode and they don't really understand, you know, they're just reading the pitches and the contour, maybe the intervals, but that's it. They're not anticipating musically what's going to happen in the music. They're not recalling and recognizing patterns that they've heard before. That becomes a real problem. 
because then they're not connecting anything that they already know to the unknown, what they're trying to figure out that's in front of them. Mm. So how do you get over that hurdle once you start introducing yeah. the notes? Well, in MLT, we also have um, on one side discrimination learning and on the other side inference learning, and we bridge between the two all the time. So discrimination okay. learning is when the teacher basically gives the answer. Um, and that has many stages of development as well. And then inference learning is when the student finds the answer themselves. So you can go this way, you know, through all the stages of discrimination and then go to the, all the stages of inference. But it's better if you go back and forth. And that, it, you know, you can always go here where the inference learning is. And you can always see what the student can do at any given moment, right. what, how much they can figure out on their own, and then go back to, mm -hmm. you know, spelling it all out for them. So, you know, I can say, bum, 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 and I can say, don't me so, and then I can show you, don't me so, or I can show you at least, don't me so on my fingers, finger staff. Um, and then that translates onto the actual staff. And that's how we go from one place to the other, back and forth. And then, you know, I can say, can you improvise with do being so? And then I can say do is G, right? Mm -hmm. And so on. So we can take it just a little bit deeper or we could take it a lot deeper. Gotcha. Okay. And then you just do that based on seeing where they are versus yes, you always. feeding them the answers. And then that's how you can just adjust and kind of fit it to yes, where they are. And, and that's very difficult. It's a much more difficult job as a teacher. Yes. Um, to constantly assess students and to practice differentiation in, uh, in instruction, even when you're in a group setting, to know for example, if a student uh, has a lower rhythm aptitude versus a student that has a higher rhythm aptitude, then aptitude is, is your natural ability, inborn ability, and it, you can affect it. You can uh, make it better if you start early. Uh, but then, you know, you're not going to throw some complex rhythm pattern at the student that has the lower rhythm aptitude, and you're definitely going to challenge the student that has a higher rhythm aptitude. So that's a whole nother area that you really yeah. have to know where you are, uh, what you, how you're sequencing. Um, you know, Gordon has a, a sequence in teaching rhythm and teaching tonal patterns as, as well as everything else. So it's not just the sequence of audiation building sequence, but it's also the skill itself has a sequence, each skill. So how does technique fit into all this, like scales, arpeggios, all that? Is that an important part of this or is this more, much more of music, music appreciation? Hugely important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. So I see it as an opportunity because we are not occupying the student's mind and vision with a score, with music notation. Uh, or counting or, you know, any of the things that we usually teach the students right from the beginning. We, uh, you know, the the student's eyes and mind is available to concentrate on how the instrument works, how their body uh, fits with the instrument, what they do, how the instrument responds to what they do, um, how they, you know, how an action gets a reaction. 
yeah. from the instrument. Yeah. And that's, you know, that feedback is of utmost importance because, um, you know, from the very beginning, because I think one, obviously it teaches the student proper technique, but two, what I've noticed with my own two daughters is that they're not afraid of the piano. The piano is a very large instrument. It can be, especially if you have a, a grand piano at home. And by learning to manipulate it successfully and learning to explore the entire keyboard, that's another problem I have, like a lot of methods that begin in the middle because, you know, you can only teach so many notes at once to read and the student plays what they can read. And then that becomes the a problem because it restricts movement. And when you restrict movement, um, you restrict technique and you get a lot of kids that form tension in the way they sit at the piano, the way they use their body because of that. It's just like an mm. outcome of this, these methods that begin in the middle or that begin with a very narrow range of pitches. You know, <laughs> that's true. And I think if you take the music away when you're teaching, especially scales, you can really work on the proper technique using your arm, using your wrist. And um, I see a lot of tension in students' hands and in their fingertips and a lot of just not strong fingertips that really inhibit them. But when you can just teach that by imitation or by experimentation, then they can really concentrate on the sounds that they're that they're making and it ends up with better technique in the end that way. I think so. That's been my experience so far. Yeah. So now how did you become this type of teacher? It sounds, some of the things sound very intuitive, the things that work really well with the way that we work as teachers just in general. Um, but a lot of it sounds like you need some pretty good training. How did you get involved with this type of teaching? Well, I had been maintaining a very full studio for many years and I was burning out, <laughs> to be quite honest. I was just burning out what's doing what felt to me like it was the same thing over and over again. And it, it I felt like I there was so much more out there for me to learn um, as a teacher. And it I felt like as a pianist, I wasn't entirely equipped to also be a teacher, that I had to have a certain pedagogical knowledge that I felt I didn't have at that point, and that I couldn't trust someone else's uh, sequence of instruction by following, just turning the page, as they say, of this and that method book. I had tried them all. <laughs> probably not all, but maybe 80% of them <laughs> mm -hmm. that are widely used. And I felt just, a, a, you know, this, this feeling like I wasn't impactful enough that I was, we were losing um, kids to other activities because music wasn't engaging enough and that it was too hard for them and they weren't experiencing enough success and children need to experience success uh, for in order for them to to be confident to like what they're doing to self-motivate um, I was never a teacher that gave candy and stickers <laughs> I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing I didn't grow up with this sort of of way of, of teaching and learning and I just didn't feel like uh, it was something 
I felt comfortable doing. So uh, basically, my students didn't have any external motivation. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> I, you know, and I felt like I could be more successful with the internals. <laughs> Um, so I myself was looking for more meaning in my profession. I was looking for greater impact for the student. I was genuinely interested how you know in how can I make this better for the student. So it was, it was a very natural development for me in my career. So how did you find the training? That's a great question. I think it was someone on Facebook in one of those piano forums that was well I, in fact i think it was one of my kids piano teachers at the moment she's an mlt teacher i think it's it was Anne Catherine davis and she had posted something and she repeatedly posted something about the method and about music learning theory and it got my attention because it talked about sequencing instruction and i already felt i think for the very first time i opened uh, ever opened the method book i felt like um, oh, this piece is not supposed to be here. I just intuitively knew it. And then with experience and time, and then also talking to other colleagues, you know, there's always these pieces in these method books that uh, collectively don't work. Like they don't work for everybody uh, or for like the majority of students. Why don't they work? It's not because of the student. It's because they're just placed, they're misplaced there. Um, they have, they require skills that the student doesn't have yet. And, and so you know, being thrown this thing for which you don't yet have a skill is really stressful and most uh, kids are not successful. So now if if someone else is wanting to get this training and learn about this method of teaching, how can they learn more about it? There are Facebook groups. Um, I can give you the, you can put them in the show notes if, if you'd like. I will. There's mm-hmm. uh, it's called Music Learning Academy. That's where I took courses in actually using the piano methods. The only piano method to this day that's been uh, made after music learning theory. And there are also podcasts, a couple of podcasts that uh, you guys can listen to. Uh, one is, uh, I think, Everyday Musicality is what, where it's specifically MLT-based. It just talks about every single tenet of MLT. Um, and the other one is Keys to Music Learning. That's more community-based and it has interviews with other teachers using music learning theories, uh, theory in their teaching exclusively or, or not. And then you'll be having a podcast soon, right? Yes, yes. Mine is going to be more about specifically teaching piano through the MLT lens but also it's going to be directed toward parents and also teaching about early childhood and what, what parents can do when they have babies and how they can prep them <laughs> in the best possible way for music. <laughs> Which will help them their entire life, even beyond the scope of music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so blessed to have discovered this. And I, I wish I had discovered it just a little bit earlier because my older oldest daughter is eight and it's been about four years for me i wish i'd known this when she was a newborn so that i can start to apply all of that you know but she's reaping the benefits even at this age oh yeah well siliana this has been 
just so eye-opening. I'm going to go and listen to some of those podcasts and learn a little bit more about this. Do you have any advice for new musicians, aspiring musicians that we haven't talked about yet? I would give the advice I gave to myself. (laughs) (laughs) This was something difficult for me in the beginning. I knew I needed something more, but I still was stuck in my old ways for a while and I questioned everything. Uh, And I think an open mind really helps you absorb this much faster and it it helps you it, it helps you learn something new without being any kind of a judge while you're doing it. So not judging and not putting something new against something old, but just taking in the new thing and just just taking it in for what it is. <laughs> and how it works because it, it's miraculous and it's how music was originally taught so in the baroque period and the classical period and all of those periods people learned music this way they didn't decode notation they learned by ear they learned to sing they they were dancing they were absorbing much 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 music before they touched an instrument and it, it was just a very much similar process to, you know, to what we now call music learning theory and audiation. Uh, it's basically how people learned before. Something happened a hundred years ago and it was so important to learn to read notation, you know, as a young child. But I don't believe this is the most natural way to approach music. So keep an open mind. That's that's really the best advice I can give. And and yeah. dig in. There's so much out there. So much research. Yeah. Siliana, thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate your time. This has been very eye-opening to me. Um, and I just appreciate you coming and talking with me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was such a joy. Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in our discussion with Siliana Shilyashka about audiation and music learning theory in the piano studio. I hope you found this program helpful and that it has piqued your interest and answered a few questions about music learning theory that may help you or your students. If you have more questions or would like to read some of the research behind this method of teaching, I will have links to the resources and podcasts mentioned in this episode in our show notes on our website frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Throughout this episode, you've heard excerpts from Scriabin's Sonata in F sharp minor performed by Siliana and shared here with permission. If you know of anyone that may be interested in today's conversation, please share this episode with them. And if you have a minute, leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts so that others can find us as well. And if you're more of a visual person and want to see our faces, you can watch the video of this interview on our Musicians vs. the World YouTube channel. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If you have questions for us, topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians that you'd like to share, be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at As always, thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.